Is there anything more beautiful than unity? If you've been around a couple who's been married, happily married, for an extended period of time, 40, 50, 60 years even, my grandparents today are actually celebrating their 66th wedding anniversary. If you've been around a couple like that who's been happily married, you see something beautiful in the way that they look out for one another's needs, the way that they lay down their rights for each other. There's a degree of understanding and care. Um, you see a union in the way that it's supposed to be. It's fitting. It's good. Is there anything uglier than disunity? Picture a married couple that fights and bickers. They talk poorly about one another behind each other's back. There's little understanding, little care, quite a bit of selfish ambition, an unwillingness to lay down their interests for the other. There's this relationship between goodness and unity, whether you're thinking about music or sports or relationships, even thinking on a national level, what does a country's unity or disunity say about its people, its laws, its purpose, its history, its culture? Last time we considered how being citizens of heaven meant living in such a way that displayed the worthiness of our king. And in particular, Paul has a kind of living in mind. It's living as a unified people. Paul continues to address his concerns for unity in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me there. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. And will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only to his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is God's word. You may be seated. Our big idea this morning is that Christian humility produces Christian unity. Christian humility produces Christian unity. It's humility, yes, but we're talking about Christian humility, right? It's birthed by and in response to God's triune being, his oneness, his transcendence, his works toward us, and it produces Christian unity. One centered on the person of Christ, his teaching, his people, and this, this morning, we'll make two observations from our text. We'll see the reasons for unity and the practice of unity. The reasons for unity, that is why we should pursue unity and the practice of unity. That is how. We'll think very practically this morning about what it looks like for us as a church to pursue the kind of unity that Paul is after. So first, the reasons for unity. Look at verse 1. If then there is an... If then, there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit. If then, that is therefore. Your translation might omit the word, but it's there. It means therefore. And what Paul's doing is he's linking this section with the section that's right before it. I mean, even if you're looking at your Bible, of course, chapters and verses are helpful. Sometimes they can be misleading because it looks like these are two different sections. But really, beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, all through chapter 2, 11, there's this uh, one section, and Paul's driving home um, the statement that he's made in verse 27, that as citizens of heaven, we're to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's how he began. And then he goes in his discussion focused on their suffering. You see, they're being opposed from the outside. Their stability is in question. Their unity is in question because they're being opposed by the outside world. But Paul gives them this comfort that their suffering, their being opposed, is actually a sign to them that God intends to save them. We see the paradox of the Christian life that uh, the cross comes before the crown, that it's actually through suffering that we make it to final salvation. And so Paul gives them this promise. It's a sign for them of their salvation. It's also a sign for them that their opponents will be destroyed, that in their opposition of God's people, they're actually opposing God himself. And so Paul, he switches now from talking about this obstacle outside of the people to one within them, namely pride, selfish ambition, these things that are obstacles to their unity. But the, gui- the guiding premise still is what he said in chapter 1, verse 27, that as citizens of heaven, we're to live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's kind of doing this dual thing where he's picking up where he left off, um, talking about their suffering and driving home um, what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel, specifically in unity. So therefore, or if then, there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, Paul first gives us reasons for unity from God. Right? If there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation of God's love, we'll see, if any fellowship with the Spirit. Now, if, of course, it's conditional, okay, have you, you might even hear it this morning, if you spend any time around parents, definitely parents of young children, you hear if a lot, right? If you keep doing this, I will discipline you. If you eat all your dinner, I will give you a cookie. Things you probably shouldn't say, but you do. Okay, so there's, it's conditional, right, in that encouragement in Christ, love from God, fellowship with the Spirit ought to lead to the same kind of thinking, love, unity, and purpose. But what Paul's not doing is giving them a litmus test. So they see there and see, am I encouraged, feeling loved, um, having fellowship with the Spirit? Everything that he's saying is assumed to be true. You could think of if as since. Since you are encouraged in Christ, since you have been loved by God, since you have fellowship with the Spirit, okay? It ought to compel you to pursue unity in the body. It's Unity, harmony, it's fundamentally a response to who God is and what he's done on our behalf. And what Paul is doing here, he's piling on what are actually really rare words in the New Testament. They're theologically dense words, they're evocative words, and he's trying to stir their affections and their thinking about who God is, what he's done for them, that it might produce humility in them that would lead to a type of harmony in their body. Okay? It's fitting, it's right, it's good given who God is that we would live in unity. So let's unpack these. First, if you have encouragement in Christ. That is, since you are encouraged by being in Christ or since you are encouraged by having union with Christ, by being united to him. And encouragement here should be understood as comfort, okay? It's coming off of Paul's discussion about suffering. Paul uses this Similar words, similar phrasing in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 would encourage you. We don't have time to look at it now, but, if, but to look at that later this afternoon, think about God's comfort toward us in affliction. It's actually in our affliction that God comforts us. That's the only means by which we can actually experience that type of nearness of God where he comforts our hearts. But Paul's coming off this discussion about suffering, and he's trying to tell them that they do indeed have comfort, and it's by being united to Christ. This makes sense that Paul would be comforting them 
He sees his atoning death for sins. He sees his victorious resurrection and ascension to heaven. So Paul's saying, yes, Christian, you might be suffering. Rome might be pressing in. You might feel the sting of their injustice. Your body might be failing you. Your family might be failing you. Work might be failing you. But there is comfort in knowing that you are in Christ. There is more comfort in him than you could find in any food or drink or show. That when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And he looks at you with eternal, heavenly, fatherly pleasure. He looks here this morning and says, these are my sons and my daughters. Is there anything more comforting, a safer thought than being in Jesus with the Father in heaven? If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, I think we can assume this here is the love of God. Okay, it's, it's sandwiched between two persons of the Trinity. God, of course, is love. And Paul uses, he employs the same pattern elsewhere. In a benediction that we often quote, 2 Corinthians 13, 13, we see Jesus, love of God, fellowship of the Spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So this is God's love. Paul's saying that we're consoled by God's love. A consolation, it's a comfort that you receive when you've been disappointed. Okay, so you might think of a consolation prize probably comes to mind. For many of the millennials in the room, you know, we kind of grew up in the age of consolation prizes. <laughs> you don't win, but you get a ribbon. Okay, well, the disappointing thing here is suffering. They're experiencing persecution, injustice at the hands of the empire, which is only going to intensify. But Paul's saying the consolation, the comfort, their prize is knowing and experiencing God's love. Friend, what does it mean to you that you are the object of God's love? That he loves you so much that he would send his only unique son to die for you, right? That the majestic and holy one, he loves you, the sinner, like a son. Not only that, but he works all things together for your good, that he's pleased, actually happy with you in Jesus. When Haddon was younger, he would do this thing where he would ask a question all the time that he already knew the answer to to elicit a specific response. He did it every day, like all day, every day, and it went like this. <gasps> if you're a parent of a toddler, you know what that's like. But he would ask something like, Daddy, who got me this Hot Wheel? And I would say, oh, your mom and I did. And he would say, why? And I would say, because we love you. Like, Daddy, who, who got me these pajamas? Well, Mommy and I did. Why? Because we love you. Daddy, Daddy, who got me this plane? Well, I did. It's like you already asked me ten times, this specific plane today. Well, why did you get it for me? Because I love you. You see, Haddon wasn't trying to learn something new about his Hot Wheel or his plane or his pajamas. The prize for him was knowing he was the object of his father's love. Just to hear that his daddy loved him. Friends, what does it mean to you that you are the object of your heavenly Father's love? And I don't mean to trivialize your suffering. Paul, of course, is suffering. He's in prison, potentially, you know, um, potentially to be executed. He's opposed both outside and within the church. And he's saying that our consolation is the love of God. Right? You might be ill. Your marriage might be struggling. You might actually be persecuted as Paul has in view, you might especially be grieving the pain of injustice, 
You could be lonely, depressed. Friends, there's comfort in all of our suffering in knowing that God loves you, that he has your good in mind, that his love is your reward. Since there is encouragement in the Son, love of God, and fellowship with the Spirit, it's not simply that God has accomplished something on our behalf in Christ or that we're the object of God's love, but that God himself has come near to dwell in us. Right? We have fellowship with the Spirit. Jesus gets at this in John chapter 14, beginning in verse 23. Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 25, I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. The Father and the Son, they draw near and make a home with us in the fellowship of the Spirit. His seal upon us, his mark upon us, is yes, a guarantee of our salvation, but also of God's friendship toward us, of his fellowship with us. How remarkable that the infinite, holy, transcendent God has come near to dwell in people like us. That he's even here in our midst this morning. So Paul begins with these reasons for unity from God, who he is in himself, eternally experiencing union, the object of his own love, experiencing fellowship with himself, perfectly so, satisfyingly so, eternally so, and God has extended that to us. He's brought us in, so to speak. Since then, you have comfort for being in Christ, that God regards you as a son. Since then, you have God's love, that is, he loves you as a son. Since you have fellowship with the Spirit, that is, God and the Son have come to make a home with you. And what you would expect is for Paul to move immediately to then have the same thinking, love, purpose. But he actually adds one more reason, and it's a reason for unity from friendship. Okay? One more reason for unity, and it's from friendship. He makes this pastoral plea to his people. He says, if any affection and mercy, by which I think he means theirs toward him, if any affection and mercy for me, right, make my joy complete. So Paul's making this, it's really this emotional appeal to them, that him, their apostle who planted them, he shared the gospel with them, planted their church, discipled them. He's in prison on behalf of Gentiles like them, right? He feels his affection toward them, as we've seen over and over in the book, um, that he prays for them in joy and in thanksgiving, that he would be willing to give up what's better, being with Jesus, to remain with them, which is more necessary. And he's saying, if there's this mutual affection and mercy, if you take pity on the fact that I am in prison, well then, and again, he doesn't go straight to walk in unity. He says, make my joy complete. Isn't that interesting? We see here that the Christian apostle or pastor or missionary or church member even, I hope, they're not robots, right? Their, their, their head is not so in the sky that they've detached their joy from the people of God. Now certainly, Paul's joy, it's rooted, it's anchored in something that doesn't change. It's immutable. The character of God, his love, his promises, his work. But he's also hitched his joy to something that does change. The progress of the gospel in God's people. Remember Paul prays for them, for their joy and Praise for them with joy in, in chapter 1, verse 4. He rejoices the gospel's advancing, 112. He labors for their joy, 126. And he's saying they can actually, the joy that's begun with them, they can bring it to completion by walking in unity. 
Friends, this is certainly true for Joshua and I as your pastors, but I hope it's true for all of us that we've hitched our joy to one another, okay? Not to something as superficial as, you know, the MCU or whether the Lakers win another championship. As a Lakers fan, I hope they do this year, right? But my joy as a pastor and member, it's been hitched to us, right? To our marriages, to our family discipleship, to how and whether we're fighting sin, to what and how we believe, to how we're walking in unity. And that's what church membership is. It's this obligating of oneself toward others to make their joy and progress in the faith your responsibility and your joy. Our covenant, part of our covenant reads this way. We will participate in each other's joys and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. So this part of the text is parenthetical. Paul could have gone straight to from God to walk in unity, but he inserts this, and it's this good reminder to us that ministry is relational, right? And that in church membership, there's this tethering of our joy to one another's spiritual well-being. I think a good question for us is, how have we been concerning ourselves with the well-being of our other members? And a good litmus test is, what are the things that have caused us to rejoice or to weep lately? Have, do any of those things have anything to do with the people of God? I'm not saying all of them, but some of them should have to do with the people in this room. And so we've seen the reasons for unity, right? The triune God's work for us, his love toward us, his friendship with us, this pastoral plea, make my joy complete. And now we arrive at the practice of unity. Verse 2, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same spirit, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. This is really similar to what we saw in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul said he wanted to hear or see that they were standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Is Paul saying that he wants us to be clones, right? All thinking the same way, feeling the same way, same purpose. When Paul says same thinking here, the word doesn't mean um, strictly thinking, okay? It's a, lot, it's, a, it's a lot bigger than that. It carries with it emotions, volition, or movement. Paul's not saying we all need to think the same thoughts about um, how to vote, or for whom to vote for, right? Or whether we should homeschool our kids or not, or how to go about promoting justice, or whether hot dogs are sandwiches or not. They're obviously not. He's speaking more generally, more broadly about having the same type of mindset, which he's been getting at throughout this book, okay? That for us to live as Christ, to die is gain. That remaining means um, fruitful ministry, that we, our love would be growing in knowledge and discernment, and specifically, as we'll see later in verse 5, that we would share the same mindset or attitude of Jesus, one of humility, that though he was in the form of God, he took the form of a man, of a slave, a servant. So Paul wants us to have this similar disposition of thoughts, of, of mindset, of attitude, and he wants us to have the same love, right? The same affections, the same commitment toward God and one another's good. If the greatest commandment is to love um, God and our neighbor as ourself, then that ought to be the major orientation of all of our lives. We see that it's the same love, so when we come in here, there's not a competition for our affection, that you're worried that, oh, if I talk to so-and-so, I've got to deal with them and their separate cause kind of thing. But there is this unified love of God, love of brother and sister and neighbor. And then united in spirit. And I think what Paul's getting at here is 
He's talking about a real harmony of the people, not just one on paper. Okay? You can go to a Grizzlies game, and there's a lot of different type of people in there, but it's a very shallow, temporary unity. I think this is true, sadly, for a lot of our churches. They can be diverse, but all the relationships are among same types of people, okay? Or it could be a very, uh, you know, divided church. Paul's wanting a legitimate, authentic, harmony, love, affection type of culture among the people of God. And, of course, he expects that we'd be intent on one purpose, which I think he's made clear time and time again in this book. It's the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the honoring of Christ in our bodies, Um, that as a church we would be intent on making disciples from Memphis to the ends of the earth to the glory of God. There are a lot of good things, a lot of good organizations, but that is what this church is about. So that's, in one sense, the content of our unity, a similar disposition, same love, real harmony, mission. But how do we pursue unity? This is what Paul gets at in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. If you've been maybe regularly reading Philippians Um, as I've been preaching through it, or you just remember from last time or from a a while back, Paul uses this word selfish ambition once before. If you look at verse 15 and 17, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Verse 17, the others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. So some people in Rome, they're actually preaching in such a way out of a spirit of jealousy or envy with Paul. They're trying to do him harm, and they're doing so out of selfish ambition. They're trying to promote themselves and to get ahead. Ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. Okay, Paul says in Romans 15, his ambition is to proclaim Christ where Christ has not been, known, been made known. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says that if anyone desires to be an elder, that's a noble desire. It's a holy ambition. But what selfish ambition does is it seeks to flip everything on its head. If we're to be about the glory of God and the good of our neighbor, selfish ambition seeks to make everything about us. It asks the questions, how can I get ahead, even if it's at the expense of my neighbor? People become kind of tools or pawns for us as we try to advance ourselves. So what does it look like to have selfish ambition or conceit in the church? Perhaps it means only serving if it means to be seen. Or growing bitter when others are given more public opportunities and you're not. It could mean wanting a specific office like elder or deacon or deaconess, which Lord willing will have in the future. Wanting those offices without being willing to put any of the work in. Actually doing the ministry. Actually serving the church. It could mean leveraging the relationships in the church. Not for the people's good, but because they can benefit your reputation, your business, perhaps other relationships. You might try to make every conversation about yourself to make you look good. The question you're asking is, how can I get ahead? Paul tells us we should not do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. It's such a provocative sentence, I think, that we're quick to glaze it over. In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Paul is basically telling his readers, the church in Philippi, that each of them ought to consider that they should consider themselves as the other members' servants or slaves. Paul calls himself a servant or slave in verse 1. We'll see that he identifies Jesus as a servant or slave in the Christ hymn, verses 5 through 11 as well. And now he's telling his readers to do the same thing. In our, in our culture, we value humility, right? So if you watch like a football game 
and they're interviewing the quarterback afterwards. We like to see him, you know, talking about his offensive line. He wasn't blocking for himself or, or his receivers. He didn't catch any balls or the coach. He didn't call, you know, he didn't call most of the plays. We appreciate that. In Roman society, humility was not a virtue. It was a bad thing. It was the characteristic of a slave because it meant that you had to spend all your time thinking about other people as though they're more important than you because they were. Now, Paul's not saying that people are, that we have to think about people as better than us qualitatively. He's saying we need to treat others as though they are more important. This is what humility leads to. I think we tend to confuse humility sometimes. Humility is not about throwing pity parties or about thinking really poorly about ourselves. That's oftentimes just pride. It's making something about yourself. You're trying to make a show for yourself. Humility is really about thinking rightly about yourself. First as a creature before God the creator, and then secondly as a creature before other image bearers. Paul is saying that we ought to think as others as more important than us. If you recall, Philippi was a socially stratified city. This means that there's there basically an objective way to determine someone's social status that you could then kind of measure yourself up against. Now, we might not have something objective, but we do the same thing, okay? Only we do it based on culture, ethnicity, income, dress, type of work someone has, hobbies, age, social media followers. So on some level, we assess social rank as we're talking with others. An obvious indicator in Philippi would have been citizenship. It was a big deal to be a citizen of Rome. So in their body, there would have been some people who were citizens. On one end of the spectrum, it comes with rights, glory. And on the other end of the spectrum, those who were slaves, no rights, no glory. And Paul's flipping everything on its head. Not in the sense that he's making the slaves masters and masters slaves. Like, he's not a Marxist. He's flipping everything on its head in that every single member ought to consider themselves as the servant or the slave of everyone else. Okay, so if you remember, some, the church began with a, with a handful of people. One was a former fortune-telling slave girl. One was Lydia, the wealthy merchant. That meant when the slave girl was with Lydia, she's thinking about Lydia as more important than herself. There's nothing radical about that. She does that all the time. But it also means with Lydia or with the Roman jailer who is certainly a citizen, when they're with this gal, they're not viewing her as a slave. They're thinking about her as a citizen of heaven, one for whom the king died and rose. And so when they're with her, the question that they're asking themselves is, not what can she do for me, but how can I serve her? She's more important than me. How can I lay aside my selfish ambition, my interests? How can I do her spiritual good? How can I care for her? This would have been incredibly provocative. It's like when you come in here, you're the lowest ranking member in the army. You're a private. And in your mind's eye, it's like everyone else is a general. Or like you're an intern and everyone else are CEOs. Or maybe you're the youngest sibling. And your concern becomes not about you, not about how you can get ahead, but about your brothers and sisters. How can you do them spiritual good? How can you change your orientation from looking to your own needs to that of your brothers and sisters? Right? God has so loved this person. What can I do to love them too? So humility is about, in one sense, thinking rightly about ourselves. It's also just about thinking less about ourselves. <laughs> as consumed as we are with ourselves, verse 4, everyone should look out not only to his own interests, but rather, or instead of, to the interests of others. Verse 3 tells us that we ought to consider others as more important, and verse 4 is really telling us how. You see, looking out for our own interests or loving ourselves, it's natural. 
Jesus doesn't command it. Paul doesn't command it. If they did, our prayers of confession would be very short every week. It's in our own sinful inclination is to think about ourselves, to look out for our own interests. And Paul is telling us that rather we ought to look out for the interests of others. Christian life and life in the church, it's so radical because it calls us away from our selfish ambition, from our own interests, to think about the interests of other people, even if it does no good for us. This means that serving others will always involve sacrifice because it always involves, it always calls us away from ourselves, from thinking about our ambitions or our interests to that of someone else. When you get married, you realize this very quickly, okay, right? You marry someone with their own thoughts, feelings, way of doing or not doing the dishes. Um, And now you find yourself where before you were thinking about your interests all the time, and now you've got someone else. And then you have children, and you're like, okay, here we go again, but even more. Well, joining a church, being a member, it's like joining a family. It is with new brothers and sisters, and it changes your orientation, your responsibility. And it's this active role, the looking out, the looking around to see whom we can do spiritual good to. How can we consider the interests of others in our church? You could pray through the membership directory, knowing that God listens to us. You can text other members and ask them how to serve them. You could serve some of our new parents. Um, like in the last, very recently, we added like four new babies by God's grace. When we, when we, Lord willing, come back after COVID, we've like doubled our uh, children's size. But friends, those parents are tired. You could extend friendship to some of the mem- members who are living by themselves. If you're in the majority culture, you could seek to understand why and how some of your minority brothers and sisters are grieving right now. That it's someone else's interest probably means that you don't understand. And then you have to put the work in to try to see where they're coming from. Okay? It's not birthed out of understanding. It's birthed out of looking, seeing a need, and taking interest in them as though they're more important than you. So friends, since you're comforted by Christ, since you're consoled by God's love, since you have fellowship with God and His Spirit. Because of our common brotherhood, pursue unity in our body. Humble yourselves. Consider others as more important. And importantly, look to Jesus, the one who did so preeminently. This isn't our text today. I'll preach on it next time. But beginning in verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant or slave, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Behold our model of humility, that God the Son, though in the form of God, became a man and took on the form of a servant or a slave. That he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Why? To die for the very sinners we ought to consider as more important than ourselves. Friends, I promise you, you cannot give up more than Jesus did for us, for his people. And if you're not a Christian, we would compel you to consider the love of God for people like us. 
that Jesus has dealt with our biggest problem, our sin against him, his wrath against us, that he did become a man in history, that he lived on our behalf, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the dead, that he offers you life. And it's a free gift. All you have to do is turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Talk to any member about that today here. They would love to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this section begins with Christ, right? We are to live as citizens of heaven worthy of his gospel. Our, our text this morning begins with the comfort of Christ, that we've been united to him, that God, when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. And it, of course, ends with Jesus, the model of true humility that propels us to harmony. Will Christ's comfort, God's love, the Spirit's fellowship move us to humility and harmony? Our country's disunity is sadly on full display right now. We have the good news about our victorious king and his heavenly rule in country. May we proclaim that with our words, and may the way that we live with one another testify to the goodness of our king and his rule. May we live unified, in love, with the same thinking, same purpose. Let's pray for that now. Father, we are humbled thinking that you would send your unique, your one and only son to become a man in the likeness of us sinners but without sin, that he would die on our behalf, that he would raise from the dead, that he would offer us life, that when you look at him, you see us. When you look at us, you see him. We pray that we would take on that same attitude, one of humility, that in response to who you are, in response to your works to us, that it would be the right thing, that we would be compelled to understand our brothers and sisters who are different, that we would look to their interests, not our own. We pray that you would help to put our flesh to death, that all of us would be life-giving spirits to one another. We pray that as people look at our body, that they would see Jesus manifested among us in the way we love and care for each other. And we pray this in his name. Amen.